0: Victoria Isaacson is a wheelchair fencer with a goal of competing at the 2024 Paralympics in Paris. In addition to being an elite athlete herself, she also coaches fencing and has recently completed her doctoral degree and is an occupational therapist. So let's chat with her. So Victoria, I thought we'd start. I know that uh, before you got into pair fencing that you were, you were already fencing, you know, kind of early, you know, early on in your life. So how did you first get into the sport?
1: So I got into fencing. Um, The club has been like five minutes for me my whole life and it still is. And I never knew, but I was meeting with some friends in middle school, um, like the eighth grade year going into high school. And one of my friends and their younger sister were doing fencing and they invited me to come along. And I just really fell in love with the sport and they don't do the sport anymore, but I've stuck around and I'm going on like almost 12 years of doing the sport at this point um, with almost perfect half and half, half of it being para and half of it being able body.
0: And were there other sports that um, you were, you were involved in at the time or was it, was it you just focused on fencing immediately?
1: So when I was young, my mom kind of put me into every sport and I didn't really like anything. So I did swimming, I did lacrosse, I did soccer, I did softball and I didn't really like any of it. Um, one thing that really stuck with me that I continue doing and still continue to today um, outside of like a qualifying season is I do work with horses a lot. Mm-hmm. So I was a full-time farm manager. I was riding and I was volunteering at a local horse rescue when I started fencing. And I focused on the horses way more heavily than fencing until I actually experienced my disability. And then I kind of Focus more on fencing. And then at one point, it was a heavy 50 50 split. And now it's more of like a 98% split on fencing. And then the horses, when I'm not too worried about if I get hurt, I'll have time for recovery type thing. um But mostly it was always horses and swords. In my first lesson with my coach, he still remembers to this day, I looked and turned to my mom and I went, All I want to do is play with swords and play with ponies. And That's been pretty true to this day still.
0: (laughs) That that sounds like the title of your autobiography right there.
1: (laughs) Ponies and Swords, yep.
0: And what do you think it was about fencing itself that that just drew you in?
1: So my uh, disability is genetic. So I had a lot of health issues when I was younger. Like my joints were bowing out and I was constantly injured and I couldn't run as fast as the kids are doing as much. But with fencing, the sport is so individualized, I could still be successful even if I wasn't the most athletic or didn't move like everyone else. And I didn't have to perform to a standard where we were all carbon copies of each other like I found in soccer and softball. And I could really mold how I fenced to how I was feeling that day. And that still holds true today. It was just such a challenge for the mind and the body but I was still able to be successful despite anything I came across it. and still continuing to adapt it's just such an adaptable sport
0: i like that so depending you literally depending on the day you can adapt your your style and your approach
1: yeah so with able body fencing you, you utilize your hand and your feet just as equally so you could set the tempo and solutions from the hand foot or a combo of the two So maybe you just have a stronger, faster hand if you can't um, back it up with your legs. And in wheelchair, it's way more arm heavy, but you use your torso to move or your arms to move, like lean in and out of this distance. And it's still kind of the same. So if maybe one day my shoulder's really bad, I can rely more on my speed and my agility to move away. Um, Or if maybe my back hurts, I can rely more on my arm. So it allows you some wiggle room. Um, especially on those longer competitions,
0: and so what do you think it is about swords that that you that you like?
1: Um, there's a lot of problem solving. So every single person fences differently, so there's never one set solution. Someone can be doing something that they don't even know they're doing that makes it harder to solve. So there's a lot of different variables, and it really challenges the mind. And I've always liked a puzzle, and I've always liked a challenge mentally. Um, but also, like, who doesn't like to hit things? So it's like it's falls in line with like a martial arts where it's very contact based, but it's super safe. So like I'm not getting concussions. I'm not getting hit really hard all the time. So I still get that feel of like, oh, this is a contact sport without it being dangerous. So my dad was a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo and he tried yeah. to get me into it. And I didn't really like that level of physical contact, but I think fencing is a good middle zone. Yeah.
0: And um, when did you pivot from, you know, quote-unquote able body fencing to para-fencing?
1: So as any disability journey is, it wasn't a clear switchover. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 17 and in my junior year of high school, I suffered a traumatic injury from one of my horses to my thigh. Um, and it was supposed to heal properly, but it just didn't heal and my leg just started atrophying and I started having all this se- severe nerve pain. And I was still fencing through it. Like, I just changed how I was fencing. But that following December, I had a complete neurologic episode and was discharged despite being on fall precautions, seizure precautions, just because they couldn't pin it down what was wrong with me. And they kind of pinned it on, oh, it's your high school year. Go, um, You're stressed about college applications. And no matter how much I kept telling doctors, no, it's not because I'm stressed. Something's really wrong. They didn't believe me. And I didn't really get a diagnosis until I was almost 23. So only like three years ago for me, like 22, 23, um, I was really struggling in fencing able body because I'd go to these competitions, I would sweep my pools, win all my bouts and pools, I would get to direct eliminations, and I just could not move anymore. I was shaking, I was having migraines, I was stumbling and falling, um, I couldn't push off my back leg anymore. Like I was just so fatigued, and as it got worse, my coach looked at me and he goes, Listen, I don't know anything about wheelchair fencing. You don't know anything about wheelchair fencing. He goes, You're gonna destroy your body if you keep doing what you're doing. He goes, mm-hmm. Let's do this journey together. And I didn't really want to step away from Able Body because I felt like it would remove me from that little community I built. But I started turning towards coaching. And now I spend a great deal of time also coaching Able Body while also competing in wheelchair myself. And it's just such a great community to have both avenues without being like separated. So it's not like other adaptive sports where you'll have, Oh, here's your wheelchair team. Here's the able-bodied team. We all train together. So the dynamic never changed for me. So I'm kind of still stuck in that able-bodied world while also still being able to pursue an adaptive sport myself. So the hard switch for me was probably 2018. I was like, I want to compete and pursue this, and I started putting all my energy into that, while also coaching.
0: But it was it's good that your coach and you knew about para fencing because I know that often, um, when you have a disability, sometimes you just don't even know that that sport or a sport, a particular sport, is even available to you.
1: Yeah, so I didn't know it was a thing. Um, USA Fencing has put in a lot of effort in the past, like two to three years, to really put para fencing out there. They're way more like, this is what the team is. This is what we're doing. But before that, I didn't really know about it, but my coach did because he's been in fencing almost his whole life. And he was just like, I don't know anything, but we'll watch all the videos available to us. We'll talk to people. And basically the first couple of years of me competing on the international level was me just filming other people fencing and how they moved and what they did. And then bringing it back to my coach and him working it backwards like how do we build the foundation and how do we make this successful and here we are in 2024 with me um pretty close to qualifying for paris it's still on the edge so if i do great if i don't there's always the next cycle but like we reverse engineered that to get where we are and he's currently the national coach so like we both really worked our way towards this um as a team
0: that's awesome and and how uh, as an individual, how different was it for you to make that switch and to make that pivot um, in terms of uh, uh, what you knew and then and then how to fence, uh, you know, in, in a wheelchair?
1: It was quite difficult. It's a completely different sport, honestly. So when I was an able-bodied fencer, my game was heavily based off my athleticism because when I was like 15, 16, I was very athletic. I had strong legs. I could move in and out of space really quickly. And my game was based off of hitting the legs, the feet, um, and having explosive energy from outside the distance into the distance. Um, With wheelchair, one of the troubles I found is like, legs aren't target anymore. I'm not moving from the legs. I had to completely build my core. Um, But this coincided also with my disability onset. So I have issues with my pupils dilating. So we started realizing I couldn't see distance or see some things happening. So we had to change how I was fencing completely to based on feel and based on my understanding of context clues, not necessarily this is how far away I am, but, oh, if I feel on the blade, I know where I am. So it was this really hard pivot to try to figure out how to not only do the sport and how it's so different than what I already known, but also how to do the sport in a body I wasn't used to anymore. Mm. And even today, I'll talk to other wheelchair athletes. And my experience is still completely different from them because I have all these compounding medical issues. I'm not just an amputee or just a spinal cord injury. I'm a progressive disorder. So we don't really know like where it's at. But now I have teammates. And there's a couple of people from the French team that also have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or CRPS or these progressive neuro um, side effects that we're all like, wow, like we can help each other now, which is kind of nice to have. But overall, just it's a it was a big shift. I still think I'm shifting every day, figuring out how to live in a body that's constantly changing.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm glad you you were described a little bit because I wasn't familiar with that syndrome. And and that's the syndrome that you were diagnosed at just three years ago when you were 23.
1: Yeah, three, four years ago. So I have a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's a connective tissue disorder that impacts every um, connective tissue in your body. So, one of the key tenets of it is frequent dislocations and stretching of the ligaments and the tendons, and just instability everywhere. But there's also gastrointestinal. There's immune issues, there's neurologic complications, and you're more predisposed for other conditions, like um orthostatic hypotension. So, like my blood pressure, one of the biggest problems I've had is if my heart rate gets too high, sometimes my blood pressure just tanks, or if I lean back for too long and then sit up straight my blood pressure will tank and i'll actually pass out and i've had international competitions where i overheat and i start passing out while fencing like mid lunge, pass out and then they have to call medical over um but one of the secondary conditions when i got kicked by the horse i had developed complex regional pain syndrome and if you catch it early it's reversible but if you let it progress through the three stages it's not reversible anymore so it's down to maintenance um And the nature of all of my disabilities on one level, they're not progressive. But when you combine an active lifestyle with these disabilities, they do become progressive because you're just compounding injuries. But I went to school and became an OT and have a doctor in it. And I kind of understand how to take care of myself and stop, do like a lot of injury prevention and care. And I've seen my quality of life really improve over the past, like, Two years just being able to understand how to like take care of myself and kind of work with my disability instead of trying to fight it like I was in the past.
0: And I've talked to some other fencers and 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 uh, para fencers specifically. Um, are you more of an an offensive or def- defensive uh, fencer?
1: So I am more of a offensive fencer, but I have come to the point. Um, where I'm pretty equal between the two and I'm very adaptable. I like to just kind of see what the answer is. Um, I'm still working on figuring out kind of the timing for some of the defensive stuff. But I have started doing things where the distance is fixed to the person with the shorter arm. And besides three people internationally, I always have the shortest arm. But I have a really, really long torso. So if I set the distance to my distance, they can lean as far back as possible and I can still reach them. But if they have a really, really long arm, they're like on my chest. So then I set it to their distance and I can't even reach them at set distance. But because of how long my torso is, I can still reach them based on the distance. So I do a little bit of equal offense and defense to kind of playing those mind games and also playing from different distances. And we just recently started doing that. And I find it really fun to just mess with people and also just to like try to do things from different ways that not a lot of people are doing. So I wouldn't really define myself as offensive or defensive. It's more of what does this situation call for and can I rise to the occasion?
0: So it's a, it's a situational strategy then.
1: Yeah. I'm very willing to try anything it takes to solve the problem.
0: And like you and like you said, it also depends on your opponent, right? And and so you have to kind of—that's where strategy, the, the the strategy that comes into play with the sport is—is is you've got to see how how your opponent approaches the the match as well.
1: Yes. So all we're we're a small community. We all kind of know how each other fences, and that's one of mm-hmm. the biggest struggles internationally is when you're only fencing in events that are like forty five people. While the able-bodied athletes are fencing in events that are like 300, we all know how each other fences. So if I can fence in a way that's not predictable, it's really hard to pin down exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to have my weaknesses, but if I make it a little bit harder for someone to watch me fence someone else, and then I fence them completely different, i will make it a little bit harder to pin me down, um, which I think will be a really powerful tool coming forward in my career. Yeah
0: and victoria when did you realize that you did want to compete um on like an international level and and an elite as an elite athlete
1: so i can't speak for other people but i feel like the common idea is like oh i want to do this because of the publicity and the medals and everything like that and i kind of didn't really have any desires i just like solving new problems and i like Being put in different situations and trying something new. And I always like a challenge. And I tried the international level and I was kind of needed to complete the team for the Tokyo cycle. So I went along with it. It was really stressful. But now, this cycle where the pressure is kind of like, what do you want to do? Not what you have to do. I'm really just enjoying being put in new situations and having to solve the problem win or lose. And I like constantly putting myself in a position where I have to learn how to stay calm under pressure and also apply new things. And that's not a challenge I can really get anywhere else. Um, I just like really, I've always looked for a challenge in my life. I like new things. I like learning. And I feel like if I sit and be stagnant or I get comfortable with what I'm doing, um, I will grow as much as a person or as an athlete.
0: And um, so you, you mentioned something that was interesting that struck me kind of interestingly, uh, in terms of your your role in Tokyo tell me a little bit more about that
1: so I started going to competitions kind of in the middle like of where I should be like I was still very new and we qualified the first like women's foil team and women's like team in the sport in like 10 plus years Mm -hmm. and to have a team you have to have at least one b and you have to have a minimum of three people but if you have four people that's even better because then if someone's hurt then you have an alternate there was only four of us some tournaments there was only three of us so it became like an expectation um even if not like spoken about if i wanted to do the trainings and i wanted to be able to come to some there was a little bit of an expectation to do as many as i could to help qualify the team and we did qualify a team i didn't get to go but i i'm kind of okay with it because we we got to send a team which we haven't done in so long and it set me up to be a little bit more successful because i was learning during that cycle for the paris cycle but like now there's our team's grown so much and i love having more athletes and it's taken the pressure off the th- the th- original 3 of us that were going because now there's more of us so like there's not like there's still expectations for us to do well, but if I'm having an off tournament, I have my teammate there to back me up and take my place and I could be the alt. So like we have like some wiggle room and I think it's really allowed me to explore and, ha- and find fun in the sport again, which I thought mm-hmm. I feel like I lost in the past.
0: And I don't, I want to come back to a little bit more fencing uh, before we wrap up, but I want to pivot a little bit from the, sword side to the pony side. So yeah. where where did that does that interest come into play and and um and tell me a little bit more about you know that side of your your interests and and uh and things that you do.
1: So I always tell my mom she cursed me with the horse bug because when she was pregnant with me she went on like a trail ride while she was in like Hawaii on there because one of my relatives lived there. Um, but I have an aunt that really liked horses. So she would bring me to do like lessons when I was younger, and I just really have always been drawn to animals. um as a kid, I definitely had a lot of signs of autism, but th- with the age I was growing up in, autism and a d h d weren't really looked at unless it was pretty like impactful on day to day operations. So I did struggle with like socialization in like elementary middle school. So when I was able to find local organization called lucky Orphan's sports rescue and be able to volunteer and work on horses on the ground and also um learn how to work with horses and be around them without any expectations i really just found a love for them and i ended up volunteering between the age of 12 to 21 ish 22 whatever how old i was in 2019 And then I ended up actually living on the property with the owner and taking care of the horses full time for a couple months. And then I went to school again. And then my mom's still uh, an office manager for them. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of become a family affair at this point. My dad does carpentry work for the horse farms. Um, My aunt owns horses. My teammate, Ellen is on the world team, she breeds horses. So we really bonded over that. I go down and see her once a year and we hang out and we go to our farm and I help her there. But like, it's just, I really like working with animals despite how dangerous they can be. And like, they'll always hold a special part in my heart. Even if I am never in that situation where I'm working with them full time again, or if I don't own them ever again, like they've kind of like cemented their place in my heart. It just yeah. became a family thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a, a weird um, kind of dynamic, right? I mean, they're, they're wild uh, creatures, but then, yeah, there's just a human interest and connection, and and it's just it's one of those weird dynamics.
1: Yeah, we do ther- We don't do riding at the horse rescue anymore. When I was younger, they had a lot of younger horses, but they've now gotten older, and we've started taking in more horses that have like disabilities themselves. Maybe they've had like broken bones that have healed, and they can't be ridden, but they're fine being out. So, we use them for therapy on the ground and we do pediatric programs, juvenile programs at this force rescue. So, really, it's just they can be so helpful when you don't even know you need the help because they feed off your emotions. And you don't even know that you're being really bullheaded about something, but they'll be way more bullheaded than you until you get over it. So, they're really great to be around in that way, especially if you're struggling and you need some like guidance to get your emotions in check they're really good at calling you out on it very quickly
0: and and in one of your earlier responses you briefly alluded to kind of your ed- educational pursuits i have to start by asking how did you decide to get a, your initial degree in anthropology
1: so my i went in as a health science major for um pre pt and when i was there I started taking an anthro class as an elective and I just really loved evolution and the human and like humanities and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I started taking those courses and I was double majoring. And I realized I could graduate in three years with an anthro degree with all my prereqs for any sort of like medical program I want to apply to. I just had a, I I could just graduate and then take some, like take a half year off. And I was pre PT, but then I was I was reaching out to grad school programs, and they were telling me that with my disability, it would be really hard for them to accommodate me. And I was really distraught about this. So I started talking to a guy named Alan Friedman. He's one of the head medical people for USA Fencing at their events, and I've known him for a couple of years. And he is a PT, and I was talking to him, and he goes, I think you'd be a great fit for OT and bring your experience of living with disability yourself to people with disabilities or chronic conditions. So I applied to school and started school in COVID completely online. We were the first doctorate class at Quinnipiac, so we were the guinea pigs happening during COVID. And I recently graduated in the past year and have secured a job working um, for Ivy rehab doing hand therapy. So it was a long journey, but I'm really happy with where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah, I was going to say you didn't stop at the bachelor's degree. How long was the doctorate program?
1: So the doctor was about three and a half years. I started in May of 2020, and I graduated in uh, August of 2023. So it was very intensive summers, winters, spring, fall—like no time off, just go, go, go. But I honestly couldn't have asked for a better education. They really at Quinnipiac—they set me up for success pretty well.
0: And you you got a doctorate in OT occupational therapy.
1: Yes. So okay. um, we are the inaugural class of doctorates for the OT program out of Quinnipiac.
0: And how in the world did you balance, um, you know, being an elite athlete and and going through a doctoral program at the same time?
1: So I actually think um, starting during COVID saved me in that aspect. Since the world was shut down, I couldn't do the sports for the first year and a half, which is, your heart is part of the doctorate program. It's all your core basics of anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, applications of learning. And when things started, I was doing like Zoom lessons with my coach and I was doing a lot more athlete, like exercise-based stuff, like conditioning, which you can do on your own schedule. So like I would do the classes, I would exercise and then I would study. And then when the pericycle started coming up, my roommate was a PA student. She graduated. So I moved back home. And for my last two semesters, I drove from Poughkeepsie, New York to Connecticut. It's an hour and 31 way. So Mm -hmm. I would do that drive three days a week. And then the other two of the other days of the week, I was just training. And I would get my fencing schedule at the start of the semester, at the start of the year for the whole year. And I would go to my professors and be like, I will be gone. What can we do?" how do we make this work? And really just being upfront with my professors was really helpful, planning ahead of time, knowing I had a test on this day. So I have to study during these times and being really careful with like exactly how I was doing. I didn't really have to sacrifice a lot. Um, Social life's really hard, but like I made time for family and everything like, and you just get it done. You just have to plan it and just do it. And I'm even doing that now. I work full time and I work 40 hours a week but right. I'm also at fencing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. So, so a lot, like a lot of good time management lo- then. Yeah. Which has helped me in my career too. So like just being able to stick to a schedule is really helpful.
0: And you mentioned obviously that you're also doing some coaching as well as uh, still actively competing as an athlete yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, how different, you know, how different is being an athlete Uh, and and obviously practicing versus coaching?
1: So I think it helps that I'm no longer being an athlete in the able-bodied community, so I can separate it. But I Mm -hmm. also take all the skills I learned as an athlete myself and help build my students. um, We're a team. I'm not the only one working with them. We have former cadet world team members. We have former and current vet world team members. So we have a lot of knowledge on that team. So. I can talk to my athletes as an athlete myself and be like, hey, I understand the mental block you're going through. Here's the tools you need to get through it. Or I have experience being a college athlete. Here's the things you need to know ahead of time. And really, I think that's a benefit to coaching more than it is a deficit. And I also had a really strong um, mentorship with my coach on how to learn how to coach. So like I would observe, and then, like, I started coaching and teaching lessons and stuff, and would ask feedback and stuff like that. So, if you have a good mentorship program, learning how to teach is just like learning any skill in college. So mm-hmm. I just approached it in the same way. study, observe, apply. Um, and really, it's two different things. Coaching and being an athlete yourself are not the same. you if you're not a teacher, you shouldn't coach. um, it takes a lot of patience to constantly be like do this thing and then them go yes and then not do the thing so being able to give and take and like work with people and is very different than being an athlete yourself so it's really hard to compare them but like if you're able to compartmentalize and separate them you can be successful at both
0: yeah and i think that's the i mean there's probably lots of Data and statistics out there about that about athletes who aren't able to make that transition to coaching, um, because you know they they don't have that mentality or mindset of of teaching and and mentoring yeah. and and what a coach you know really does, and and so you know, I, I've always thought that being an athlete helps being a coach, but how does 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 being a coach help you as an athlete?
1: So. Coaching concepts helps me really solidify in my brain. Like I, I find myself all the time telling my students to do something and go, that's one of my worst habits. Like, and like just being able to call yourself out is like important. But also when I'm being a coach, like we have a, a good team of coaches. One of us is a lawyer, I'm a doctor. Um, Eric is traveling internationally for competitions all the time. And then we have another another two coaches. So we work as a team mm-hmm. to make our students successful, but still allow us all to be able to go and have a life and compete if we want to. So it makes it really nice and easy for, as a coach, having that connection with other coaches on my team. We have a team network just for our own pursuits. Mm-hmm. And then like constantly like reteaching the basics to someone else really solidifies it in your own brain. Like, right, this is how this should be. This is how the technique should be performed. This is the situation to apply it because I'm explaining it to others.
0: And I know that you uh, have done some research, obviously, that that incorporates uh, fencing into, and I imagine that started as part of your doctor doc, doctoral program. Uh, but can you kind of go into that a little bit of the research that you have done and you're doing?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you like an abstract. So I completed the research as part of my capstone to get my doctorate, which was my research piece, and I'm writing mm-hmm. it up for publication now. Mm. I did a mixed method qualitative and quantitative study where i sent out surveys and i also did interviews i did about 31 interviews and had about 40 survey answers or somewhere around that um and then i went through the information and i found that wheelchair fencing and fencing had impacts on quality of life in people with disabilities but it also changed how people viewed disabilities amongst able body peers So the research showed that it improved health through mental health, physical health, um, emotional regulation, all these, and community. Community was, like, one of the biggest things. Like, it built such a big community for people with disabilities Mm -hmm. while also giving them something to strive for and a goal. But at the same time, it exposed all these people to what individuals with disabilities can do and want to do. So, like... A lot of the clubs around the country will only have one or two wheelchair fencers, but they're training with like 20 other able-bodied fencers. So being able to build that relationship where you're cross-training between the two had benefits for both sides, one through exposing people to disabilities and changing their mindset, others training, but it also improved the technical skill of the people that were able-bodied fencers because now they're put in a place where they can't use their legs and they have to rely on their technique in their hand. So it really found that it improved quality of life, it improved disability perception, but it also improved the technical skill and the fencing of the individuals that weren't even training for wheelchair fencing, but they were training with wheelchair fencers. Mm. So it really just showed how important it is for us to have these inclusive environments for the benefit of everyone.
0: That's awesome. And I know you'll be presenting at Movie United's educational conference in Phoenix in April. I imagine some of this will be incorporated into that session.
1: Yes. So I'll talk about the sport as a whole, how to build adaptive equipment, and also why wheelchair fencing is different from other adaptive sports. And I'll have mm-hmm. some equipment there for people to try.
0: That's awesome. Uh, Victoria, is there anything that we've not talked about that you want to mention or highlight?
1: No, I, I think we covered everything. Just if you want to do adaptive sports and you want to do it at a high level, just don't let anything hold you back. It's, it's possible for you to do it all if you do it smart.